Tonight's topic is Apamanya, boundless benevolence, unbegrenztes Wohlwollen, qualities of the heart which are the great healing powers in our practice and in our lives. And I'll begin this with a story by Father Theophane, a Christian monk who also has been on long Vipassana retreats. There's a monk there who will never give you advice, but only a question. I was told his questions could be very helpful. I sought him out. I am a parish priest, I said. Ist ein gemeinde Seelsorger. I'm here on retreat. Could you give me a question, please? Ah, yes, he answered. My question is, what do they need? I came away a little disappointed. I spent a few hours with the question, writing out answers, but finally I went back to him. <coughs> Excuse me, perhaps I didn't make myself clear. Your question has been helpful, but I wasn't so much interested in thinking about my pastoral work, my Seelsorge in the Gemeinde, during this retreat. Rather, I wanted to think seriously about my own spiritual life. Could you give me a question for my own spiritual life? Ah, I see. Then my question is, what do they really need? <laughs> Not so much our personal spiritual, spiritual well-being is what's most important in our practice, but the well-being of the many. Appamanya, the Pali word, means boundless, without boundaries or limits, as has already been explained. It refers to qualities of the heart of benevolence, of wohlwollen, and equanimity, gelassenheit. They're of great significance in almost all Buddhist practice traditions. Appamanya is mostly used in the Tibetan tradition. Well, Brahma-Vihara is more used in the Theravada. And of course, these qualities are essential not only in Buddhist practice, but in all forms of spirituality, all forms of human development. <clears throat> the qualities are four, and have been mentioned before here, and many of you are quite familiar with them. Kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And of course, we could add other qualities such as generosity. In many ways, that's also the same group, or wise faith and devotion, and others. When these qualities have become quite unshakable, or let's say fully matured, they will embrace and include all living beings without boundaries, without exception. That's why they're called Appamanya, 
or boundless. They're also called Brahma-viharas, and the meaning of this has already been explained in this retreat. There are illustrations for all these four qualities of the heart. One kind of illustration, they're being compared to the feelings of parents who have four children, and that's in the ideal case, of course. They have a very small child, they have a physically disabled child, they have a cheerful teenager, and the oldest who has already left home and goes her own ways. So for the little one, they feel love and kindness, metta. For the disabled child, they feel compassion, karuna. For the cheerful teenager, they feel appreciation and joy. And for the grown-up who's left home, they feel, in the ideal case, benevolent equanimity. The practice of this qualities is called Appamanya or Brahmavihara Bhavana. Bhavana often gets translated as meditation, but actually Bhavana from the Pali means development or cultivation, as, for example, in Mudita Bhavana would be appreciative joy development. The Tibetan version of this is Gom. Gom, very interestingly, means to become familiar with, sich angewöhnen. So they don't say meditation. They say sich angewöhnen, to become familiar with, to make friends with, to get habituated to. So it's all not really about meditation, but it's rather about becoming familiar with these ways of beings, with mudita in this case, yet familiar with it in our lives, especially also in our daily lives. So it's not at all about getting into some pleasant state of mind, meditating, some nice feelings, but rather about the consistent cultivation of these qualities of heart, this benevolent inner attitudes. We cultivate them in order to make them more and more our home or our vihara or the default state of our heart and mind. And that would be the ideal where our heart and mind falls back when there is not something else. The four qualities can be called excellent, lofty, or sublime states of mind. Because, as Yanaponika Thera points out, they are the ideal way of conduct towards living beings, oneself included. They provide the answers to all situations arising from social contact. They are removers of tension and peacemakers in social conflict whether it's in the family, at work, in politics, and wherever 
human beings meet. There are great healers of wounds suffered in the struggle of existence. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities. They revive joy and hope and promote human connectedness against the forces of self-centeredness. That's Nanaponika Terra. It's very impressive, isn't it? And I've shortened the list. He has a lot more very convincing points. All these qualities, including generosity in some way, are like the different facets of one single jewel. And depending on the cut and on the exposure to light, they manifest different colors. This one jewel is the innate nature of our heart and mind. These qualities are called sobana or beautiful, wunderbar. I'd like to look at them one by one. Metta, loving kindness. Love without reservations. Ohne Vorbehalte. And without demands. It's the most well-known about among the four. Many of you have done practice of metta. The word metta can be translated as friendly or also as gentle. Like a gentle warm rain that falls on everything impartially, on woods, on gardens, on animals, on people, on houses, on cars. Perhaps also it's being close to all things, to all beings, whether they're lovable or they're difficult. The practice of metta is a steady, unconditional attitude of connectedness, which includes all beings without exceptions, including oneself. And the practice takes a lot of investment, of time, of effort, of attention, of interest, of perseverance, day in, day out. And that's what we do here with Murita. The actor Catherine Hepburn says about Metar, love. Love has nothing to do with what you're expecting to get. Only with what you're expecting to give, which is everything. So, quite demanding. Metta is the opposing force of irritation, anger, hatred, and also of fear and worry. So often we get lost in these painful lowlands of the heart and mind and manage to create the exact opposite of what we wish for. Martin Luther King said, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. That's true also for anger, annoyance, resentment, spite, judging and condemning, resistance, and even with boredom. They're too great a burden, really. 
Hatred and all these other forms of aversion are the so-called far enemies of metta. What's directly opposed to metta? That's quite obvious. One of them can allow for what is, whatever is, that's metta. The other needs to get rid of what is because it's not suitable. It's aversion. So they're the opposite of each other. There's one area that I find interesting because there's something, sometimes we mix up the two. For example, when there's someone who irritates us or makes us angry, we may feel that since anger is unwholesome, since we're practitioners, we should get rid of it. And we apply what we think is metta. And it comes like inside, it comes maybe like, you know, we hate them, but may you be happy and peaceful, you know. May you live with ease, you idiot. <laughs> so we push, uh, try to push out the aversion with metta. Of course, that doesn't work. Because the supposed metta is actually motivated by aversion, like it's aversion sort of masquerading as metta. But we cannot get rid of aversion by being critical or judgmental or aversive. It just doesn't work. Martin Luther King points out, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Meditation is an ideal practice field for metta and, of course, for karuna and for mudita. Practice so that we can apply it in our daily life. And here I don't just refer to 40 minutes of formal metta or mudita meditation. It's not just the meditation, particularly metta if you look at the vipassana practice. It's the ideal inner attitude in the insight practice. Just as metta allows us to meet people, connect with them with openness, with acceptance, seeing them as they are, rather as we think they should be or as we want them to be. Welcoming them with interest for who they are. It's interesting, you know, how they are. That's very different from meeting them and trying to make them to do what we would like them to do or to be. And just in the same way in the inside practice, we can meet all phenomena, all things, all experiences with openness, with interest in seeing them as they are, in understanding how they are. And that's a, it's the same quality as metta, but not turned towards being but turns turn towards the moment-to-moment experience in our meditation 
or ideally also in daily life. Achanamaro describes an important aspect of this way of relating in his book, Finding the Missing Peace. It's kind of a word game. Kindness does not mean that we simply do whatever we feel like. A mother who loves her child doesn't simply let the child do whatever the child wants to. Some discipline needs to be established. Similarly, in meditation, we establish the basis of kindness by first recognizing that everything belongs in meditation. Nothing nothing should be left out. The distractive thought belongs. The focus on the breath belongs. The wave of anger belongs. The wave of fear, the restless sensations, the fantasy They all belong along with benevolent and pure thoughts. The quality of absolute belonging that everything has its place is the basis of loving kindness, of wholehearted acceptance. Interesting statement, isn't it? We need to practice and apply what Hachan Amaro suggests also in small things. Because from many short moments of aversion grows the tendency for hatred and for many little moments of benevolence grows the tendency for kindness or for compassion or for sympathetic joy. Patrul Rinpoche wrote, Never underestimate a small unwholesome act by thinking it will not matter. Even a tiny spark of fire can set alight a mountain of fire. And for wholesome acts, even small drops of water can, one by one, in time, fill a giant pot. So to pay attention or attitude to the quality of heart, even in very small things, any time. One important practice we can do, should apply to get more, is to get more familiar with metta and the other two apamanyas, is to really pay attention to it right when it occurs, when it's happening. And I did say the same about joy uh, three evenings ago. To really get to know those qualities, to really familiarize, get familiarized with them, particularly also in daily life. Like when in the moment we receive help, receive help from someone, even if someone holds the door for us, when we help others and we support them, to see, oh, how does that feel? Just to get familiar with. When we experience gratefulness ourselves, of course, when we ourselves are friendly and benevolent, to feel how it is, to notice how it feels. This way we get more and more familiar 
with the taste of it, the taste of this inner attitude, and find it easier to access it and to strengthen it and to finally make it our more and more permanent abode or home. So much about metta. The second one of the boundless inner attitudes of benevolence of Appamanya is compassion. Is Sharon Salzberg. Compassion is our caring human response to suffering. A compassionate heart is non-judgmental and recognizes all suffering, our own and that of others, as deserving of tenderness. Compassion, karuna, is just like kindness, like metta, a facet of the innate jewel of this boundless benevolence. Metta is the wish for beings to be happy, and karuna is the wish that all beings may be free from suffering. And just as aversion and hatred are the so-called far enemies of loving-kindness, so are heartlessness and cruelty, callousness, is that the right pronunciation? Callousness, Gefühlskalte. These are the far enemies of compassion. Compassion implies that we want to open and are able to open to suffering. And for this we need willingness and we also need courage. We also need equanimity, about which I'll be saying more in a moment. At times aversion and resistance arise when we meet suffering our own, or others. That's quite natural. We don't want to feel it as resistance. But whenever we succeed in opening to the suffering, compassion arises by itself. Then it's the natural response of the heart when meeting with suffering. I think in that it's very similar with mudita, quite different from metta. Metta, we can just wish, well-wishing, while for it to be compassion, we need to connect with suffering. If we can, then it happens by itself. And with mudita, if we just say the phrases, even if we mean them, it's still metta. For it to be mudita is to connect with the joy or with the wholesome qualities or with good fortune. And then Mudita comes by itself. At times both of those could also be blocked by conceit or arrogance. We could see suffering, but perhaps it's with people we feel disdain for, we dislike, and then of course it gets more difficult. actually wonder how much this also works for mudita. Something that's interesting with karuna can be very helpful to reflect on the fact that not only we all wish to be free from suffering, but also 
we're all mortal. Also the ones more successful than us. That would also work for Mudita. The ones more liked and cherished, the famous ones, the wealthy ones, the wise ones, they too will have to die. And success, beauty, fame, wealth and popularity will not help them at that point, just as it won't be of help to us. So to think about that, to reflect on that, it sort of does something to our relationships to others. It's to reflect on the fact that we all sit in the same boat that creates connectedness and appreciation for the suffering assigned to all of us. I guess I haven't reflected on that so much. It probably does the same. We can connect easier with people's joy, even we find them difficult, because we know we all have the same predicament. We're all going to die. So much for compassion. The third aspect of boundless benevolence, we know that one, sympathetic joy. Here's Sharon Salzberg again. Sympathetic joy is the realization that others' happiness is inseparable from our own. We rejoice in the joy of others and are not threatened by another's success. It's the benevolent wish that arises in us when we see happiness, when we see well-being, when we see success. Also when we see the wholesome, it doesn't have to be that kind of joyful thing. When we see good things in people, good things they do, good things in ourselves, good things we do, it doesn't have to be grandiose things, just wholesome. And it's the wish that this may continue and last. Here are the Buddha's words on how to do it. He apparently said, Here, disciples, now here, disciples let their mind pervade the world with thoughts of unselfish joy. They pervade the whole wide world above, below, around, everywhere, and equally with the heart of unselfish joy, abundant, grown great, measureless, without hostility or ill will. That's the ideal. I think it's strange that we are so often drawn to the unwholesome habits of mind, even though we know how much more agreeable and helpful the wholesome ones are or would be. I guess that's why Rumi asked in one of his famous verses, When you go to a garden, do you look at flowers? Do you look at thorns or at flowers? Spend more time with roses and jasmine. It's 
Also, let's integrate mudita practice in our daily life. It's one of the spiritual practices which takes the least effort and is the most fun, I think, together with compassion, uh, with, with um, generosity. We don't need to, you know, really, if if we know how it works, we don't need to do a three-month retreat to to be generous to give things away, to give our time away, to give our attention away. And it's the same with uh, Murita. Because there are always people around us who are lucky. There's always somebody around somewhere who is lucky. Always people around who have wholesome positive qualities. Always people who act or speech in wholesome ways. Or who simply are in good spirits or are successful, they're all opportunities for, they would be all opportunities for sympathetic joy. Densin Dappel, Swiss nun in Dharamsala, writes in her blog about Murita. When we see someone feeding a beggar, when we notice someone helping an old lady across the street, when we hear that large donations were collected for the flood victims, when we see how others make great efforts to cultivate wholesome mind states, such as kindness and compassion, when we see how individuals such as the Dalai Lama inspire countless people towards wholesome conduct, when we hear about people who work for sustainable and holistic education, ecology, medicine, and so forth, when we recognize that in some situation we didn't react with anger but with compassion, then all of these are reasons and opportunities to come into contact with the great joy within our heart. And she says, and it's these things that should be mentioned in the news more often. To conclude the part on Mudita, some final advertising. A scientist of the University of California in LA reports it's about relationships. I find it very interesting. It says what destroys relationships between partners or spouses is not the jealousies, is not the money, is not the quarrels. More important are the reactions or responses when the partner feels really good. Those who don't care for the partner's moments of happiness and success, those who don't rejoice in the partner's pride for some achievement or for a promotion, makes a mistake. The scientists report that more than anything, it's the reaction towards the triumphs and successes of the other that decides whether a relationship has a future or not. To celebrate the luck of the other as if it were one's own gives the partner a tremendous emotional uplift or boost. To play down the news or to depreciate them may lead to a permanent cooling down. So Art Aaron of Stony Brooks University, New York, concludes, 
when something positive happens to one's partner, it's a perfect opportunity to strengthen the relationship. And this principle can certainly be applied to all human relationships. So much to mudita. The fourth aspect of this apamanya is equanimity, skelasnaid. You could say cheerful, kind, and wise equanimity. Makes it more clear where to situate it. Upeka in Pali. Sharon Salzberg, once again. Equanimity is the spacious calm of mind that provides the ground for the boundless nature of the other three qualities. This radiant calm enables us to ride the waves of our experience without getting lost in our reactions. Again, it's a perfect recipe for our practice here and for the practice of Vipassana and, of course, for daily life. Equanimity is a powerful force that we need to understand properly, correctly. It means reliability, steadiness, the capacity to withstand extremes, to remain steadfast among turmoil, and to act with unshakable care that's really far away from indifference. Genuine and deep equanimity really is the ultimate refuge, the all-embracing inner protection. It's the essence of true inner freedom. It's a good thought to remember when you do the refuges. It's not somebody. It's that quality if it becomes very real and very unshakable. When we practice mindfulness, awareness, we do it because we want to understand for the purpose of insight. That's a very important part of the practice. But all of this mindful awareness and all of this insight is quite meaningless if it does not lead to deep acceptance, to deep letting go or letting be, to deep equanimity. Final liberation or awakening, if you wish, is the end of all grasping, is complete equanimity, is deepest peace. In other words, mindful awareness is the indispensable tool on the path. Kindness, compassion, appreciation, open-heartedness, the flavor or the heart of the practice. But the cheerful, kind, and wise equanimity is the essence of it all. Equanimity is rooted in two kinds of insights, or I can say it arises in dependence on two kinds of insight. On one hand, it's the seeing feeling and understanding that our wholesome reactions and actions create 
wholesome tendencies within ourselves and will bring more inner peace, more inner happiness. We could say it's the understanding of karma and its results, the results it has on ourselves. Through interest and mindfulness, we become aware of our wholesome and unwholesome reactions and realize how much better we're off when we respond with kindness, when we respond with compassion, with appreciation, with equanimity, instead of aversion or attachment. And this point is crucial in our practice. The question, pleasant and unpleasant experience, and our reactions of ignorance, of attachment, of aversion, or our response with awareness, wisdom, acceptance, and letting go, which is what equanimity means. That's always at the crux of practice is Next week we'll be saying more on the effects of our actions and the motivation behind our actions on ourselves. So the first course for a cause for equanimity is the insight into the effects of our actions on ourselves. Equanimity, the ability to accept and to let go or let be, also comes from insight into the nature of experience, the nature of all things, their transient nature, their impermanent nature. The fact that this existence is a constantly changing process, a dance, arising and disappearing, independence on countless conditions, our seeing, hearing, thinking, feeling, decision-making, and acting is a play of conditions and conditioning that never stays the same for even one second. Rio Khan writes, Months pass by, days pile up, like one intoxicated dream, an old man sighs. And I can tell you, for those, for most of you who don't know yet, even 74 years, it's like one intoxicated dream. It passes in a... (laughs) It's true. It's true. It's amazing. Meditation of mindful awareness must serve, must lead to this understanding, so that, I mean heartfelt understanding, so that our grip on things softens, loosens, so that we are able to live in a more non-reactive, open and equanimous way. So it arises, the equanimity arises from deeply seeing the impermanent nature of things. It also arises from the insight into non-self, into who we really are, into the fact that nowhere in our body, heart, or mind is there an independently existing or or self-existing entity, or an I-ness, or a Fredness, in my case. 
even though it feels exactly as if there is one, as if there were one. Instead, we begin to see how much we are and how much all of life is a conditioned, interdependently arising process. No self or I which could be in control, but a process, a dance that follows its own laws, which are the laws of nature, with no one in the pilot's cockpit. It's this understanding, this insight, that allows us to relax, that allows for deeper equanimity to the extent we are able and willing to accept this reality, accept the lawful facts of life. I like this saying by Wei Wu Wei, who wrote, The reason we have so much difficulties in life is that 90% of everything one does is for for oneself, and there isn't one. (laughs) Yet we also see that we are not simply powerless. We can and we must develop, cultivate, and strengthen kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And here, too, meditation and retreat are not enough. We have to apply and exercise it in daily life. As Chekhov is supposed to have said, any idiot can face a crisis. It's a day-to-day living that wears you out. That's where it takes place. (laughs) It's where practice is most needed. One quite widespread misunderstanding I want to clarify. Equanimity can be misunderstood to be a state in which one either doesn't feel anymore any sadness or joy or other feelings or that they they do not even arise anymore at all. That's not what equanimity is all about. Rather, it's the great art of allowing all the feelings and emotions to be present in their fullness when they're here without having to react to them, without having to dramatize them in any way, and without getting lost in them. They can be here, pleasant or unpleasant, and it's just fine. And they can disappear, and it's fine. They can come again, it's fine. And it's feeling them, it's living them, it's not sort of being distant. It's being completely okay in the midst of all of it. It's this capacity or ability that is meant by inner spaciousness. So just as genuine kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy are boundless benevolence, so is genuine equanimity boundless inner spaciousness. I think it's actually a better word for number four here. And another interesting point is equanimity is a significant or even essential component of metta, of karuna, of mudita. It protects kindness, compassion and joy from sentimentality and also from attachment. If the samadhi gets strong and 
the joy or the metta gets strong, attachment can very easily come in. That's where equanimity is needed. Also, when we sort of, especially with mudita, can get over the top sometimes, you know, when you practice it more, then equanimity is there to sort of hold all that. But also equanimity lends the engaged active compassion to strength not to be blinded or bedazzled by success and not to be discouraged by failures here and in daily life and in whatever your work may be, but specifically it's work that has to do a lot with compassion with people. It's a, such a, an important quality, the equanimity. We do our best, but whatever comes out, it's fine. And we see that we can do our best, but then it's out of our control. What happens, happens what others do with whatever we offer. It's up to them. And also it's the patient commitment to the activities and engagements of love and compassion. And one last point I like to make. It's essential that we cultivate and further these qualities of boundless benevolence, the Appamanyas or Brahmaviharas, by means of meditation and reflection, but ultimately they are of quite limited use if we do not lift them, if we do not express them in our daily life and engage ourselves actively. The true measure of compassion is engaged action, says Christopher Titmus. I think you know what I mean. I can leave all that. probably don't need to tell you. You, Many of you can tell me. So the boundless states, the apamanyas, must be lived, shared, given away, must lead to benevolent engagement. Otherwise, they're not apamanyas. They would be the four limited or the four narrow states of benevolence. But here, it's about unlimited, boundless benevolence. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.